Well, this morning, um, when I was getting ready to uh, to preach the same message in the uh, AM service, I was walking out, and um, and Jaden, for those of you who know Jaden, for those of you who don't, he's the one that looks like me, with the hat. Um, I'm walking out, and he says, "Where are you going, Dad?" And I said, "Oh, I'm I'm off to um off to preach at church." And he goes, he looks at me. He kind of for thirty seconds goes back to his you know, um, cartoon that he's watching, he looks back at me and he says, so you're going to pretend to be Jock? <laughs> kind of, yeah. So, so that's what I'm doing tonight. I'm pretending to be Jock. Isn't that right, Jay? Yeah. And I'll, do, I'll give it my best shot, mate, okay? Is that right? In fact, tonight what we're going to be doing is, if this is going to do what... Can we click on to the next one? And it played up for me this morning. So let me just try something. That was me, wasn't it? It was. Good. Okay. We're right. Um, tonight what we're going to be looking at is defining Christian worship. Now just to, to um, put you into, for those of you who I've not had the opportunity to have a, a bit of a lengthy discussion with about what it is that you do and in return what it is that I do, I'm a singing voice specialist by trade, but my doctoral research is uh, Christian worship singers. And as I looked at Christian worship singers over six years and um, surveyed and interviewed singers from across the country, um, I also had to delve quite deeply into the actual fabric of Christian worship, what it is that Christian worship singers are involved in. And um, I've had a history of being involved in Christian worship since I was a confirmed Anglican um, and uh, grew up in the Christian church. So I've been in church for 40 years I've, had, I've seen an array of Christian worship expressions. We, um, as kids, we, we moved from the Anglican Church across to the Assemblies of God. We were with them for a period of time, and then for, for, um, in 89, we moved into Christian Outreach Centre. I did two years of Bible college with Christian Outreach Centre, and then moved into, uh, for a period of time, Jody and I were worship pastors in a Christian Outreach um, uh, Christian Outreach Centre Church for about seven years. And after that, we left that movement. We then went across to being um, Baptist. <laughs> Keep up. And then we went across to, we were there with them for about four years. We went across to Creek Road Presbyterian. Uh, so we went out to reform theology. And then, um, just recently, as many of you know, 12 months ago, we, we landed here. And, and theologically, this feels a lot better fit for us. But as a result, we've seen this wide array of the Christian church. We've had a real interesting experience. And you would think that a person that's seen that much of um, Christianity and has done a couple of years of Bible college, has, um, has uh, been a worship pastor for seven years, he'd kind of know what this thing called Christian worship is. Well, as I started to really delve into it uh, in the era of uh, my doctoral research, it actually started to become quite apparent to me that I had no idea what this thing, Christian worship, actually is. What is it that we do? All of us in preparing to come tonight, probably, and this is not an accusation, but we probably didn't think a lot about what it was that we were about to engage in. Why? Because most of us have been doing it for many, many years. Not as many years as the collective group um, this morning. They're a little bit older. (laughs) 
But nonetheless, we've been doing it for quite some time, haven't we? And as a result, we just don't really think about it all that much. Uh, Marva Dawn, she's an incredible writer in the area of worship, and she um, has a book called, and now I'm gone gone blank, she's got a book um, that talks about worship, and I just, it's there in the tip of my tongue, and I'm just going to keep moving forward. Sorry about that. I'll think of it in a second. Uh, A Royal Waste of Time, there it is. Um, And she calls worship a royal waste of time because that's kind of what it is, isn't it? It has this, sort of for an hour we come together and, you know, we we do this very important thing. It's got this royal nature to it. But it kind of, it's an hour and a half that by tomorrow morning we'll have forgotten about. Is that a fair call? Or do you all go on into your week thinking about and dwelling on the service that took place? You do, do you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Go to the top of the class of all Christianity. Um, That's good. Um, So anyway, as I started to delve into this royal waste of time, it became really apparent to me that I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was really involved in. And it became apparent to me that Christian worship singers that I was interviewing really didn't have an idea either. In fact, it was very much monkey see, monkey do. You know, we were kind of just doing this thing. And it brought to mind this fabulous story that I once heard about this young lady. She's in primary school and she was set this task. She had to do a research subject into her family culture. And she had to look at um, what something special about her family. And it just so happened that on the night that she bought this piece of homework home, her mum was preparing a turkey for Thanksgiving. She's an American kid. And um, in preparing the turkey, she noticed that her mum took the top of the turkey off, took a big slither of it off, and put it in the side basting tray to sit next to the turkey. The little girl says to her mum, well, why did you take the top of the turkey off and put it in the basting tray next to it? You know, what's, what's... She said, well, it's actually a secret family recipe. And... By doing this, um, it means that the turkey bastes better and we get a better taste. Doesn't our turkey always taste great? Yes, Mum, but it always tastes fabulous. And she goes, oh, well, where did you learn to do that? Oh, it's been passed down through the generations. It was my mum who taught me to do that. And she said, oh, how did she, you know, she, she said, no, I just saw her do it and, and I learned that that was... Anyway, so the little girl thought, well, I better get to the bottom of this. And so she goes and that afternoon goes and sees her grandmother. And her grandmother says, um, she says to her grand, grandmother, hey, mum's been doing this turkey and she took the top slither off it and she put it in the bastings tray next to it. She says, I know it always. She's in, grandma stops her and says, sweetie, this is a, a family secret. You're not to tell anyone else. But yeah, this is how we make our turkeys taste just right. And the kid goes, okay, well, can you tell me anything more about it? She says, well, no, I just learnt it from my mother. Fortunately for this young lady, her great-grandmother was still alive. So she decided, well, thanks, Grandma. I'll go and talk to great-grandma on the way home, and I'll go and see if she knows what the deal is with, you know, how it is that we came about that we learnt to do that. She goes around to great-grandmas, and she starts telling great-grandma about this particular story. And she says, great-grandma, it... it, I watched mum take this top slither of the turkey off and put it in the basting tray next to 
um, next to the turkey, and, and I know that that's why our turkeys taste so good, you know, and it's obviously, and the great-grandma starts to have a bit of a chuckle. You know, she gets a bit, a bit, of, a, bit of a chuckle going, and, and the little girl was a little bit indignant. Well, what's so funny? And she says, sweetie, the reason I used to take the top of the turkey off was because my oven wasn't big enough to fit the turkey in. So I had to take the top slither off and put it in the basting tray next to the turkey. Sometimes we don't know why we do what we do, don't we? And they become these ingrained traditions. And tradition instantly is not going to be the whipping boy of um, tonight. I, I, I think traditions hold their place. But sometimes traditions that we really build our fortifications on are actually not all that Christian per se, they're actually just built on, they came about by virtue of history and the requirements thereof. For example, we haven't always had organs, have we? No, we haven't. Jesus never had an organ. No, he did not. Fortunately for him. Um we haven't always had pianos, have we? And yet some churches have split over these instruments. In fact, a good portion of Christianity has split over the use of a piano or a organ. We build these um, you know, testaments to our own insights. So anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about, very briefly tonight, about Christian worship and understanding why it is that we do what we do. Let's quickly have a look at some of the key New Testament scriptures that we use to understand worship. Matthew 18:20 For where two or three are gathered in my name there am I among them. Christ is amongst us right now because he's promised to be so. We know that. That's something that's a promise that he's given us. The next one, if my clicker will do it. Romans 12.1 talks about, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not simply a coming together. Worship is something we do as a lifestyle. And there was a big movement, especially about a decade ago, um, that came out of the Sydney Anglicans actually about lifestyle as um, worship as lifestyle, and uh, even they have said suggested maybe their pendulum swung a little bit too far, and they're coming back to a little bit more balance around that. But nonetheless, the scripture is pretty directional and, and uh, tells us what to do. And this brings us to the scripture we're going to focus in on tonight, John. Four, the, the, the reading that we watched dramatised is the entirety of John 4, chapter 4. Here's two real key scriptures, two key verses. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, just before I continue, I want to give you a heads up. In a few moments, we are going to be building our own definition of worship in small groups. You're only going to get three minutes to do that. I'm going to give you 
all of those three minutes to do what the theologians have failed to do over the last two millennia, but I think we can get the job done. So pay attention as we go through the next slides because you're going to kind of need this information to come up with your own definitions. Is that okay? That's just a heads up. Okay. So let's have a look at one of the challenges facing, well, it's about to face you in creating a definition for worship is this. The Bible stops short of giving us prescriptive ideas as to exactly how Christian worship should be done. It stops short of saying you should use an organ. It stops short of saying the building you meet in should be made of brick. It stops short of saying you should do it on a Sunday. It's got less prescriptive nature to it than we'd probably like. And that's why we have what's called the worship wars. That's a terminology that's used in the literature a lot around worship. Worship wars. And some of you may have been involved in some of those over the years. Um, and, And so what we want to do is let's just very quickly, and this is going to skim across both the Old Testament and the New Testament, let's go looking if we can gather some directional ideas as to, well, how would we then come up with a definition for worship? Well, worship is covenantal. Robert Weber, a very well-known writer in the area of worship, he founded the Worship Institute in the US, sadly passed away um, four or five years ago, and he writes, central to biblical worship is the covenant or agreement between God and the people of God. The covenant regulates worship and provides much of its structure, rationale and vocabulary. Jesus saying where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst, is covenantal, isn't it? It's a promise. Worship is symbolic. All worship is symbolic, even those intuitive encounters with the holy that seem to bypass the rational process directly impacting the worshipper's consciousness. Symbolism must enter into in once the worshipper begins to think about such an experience or to share it with others. For language and thought are symbolic processes. The very nature of what we do is symbolic, isn't it? Have you ever tried to explain what you do on a Sunday night to a non-Christian friend? It's kind of like rotary, but it's not. It's kind of like going to bridge. Whoever goes to bridge, I don't know where that came from. Uh, It's kind of like being a part of a club, but it's not. There's something a little bit more to what we do, isn't it? It's symbolic. There are a range of symbols used throughout Scripture. There's acts and gestures. You know, one of the things I love about what we do here at St. Mark's is we haven't abandoned the idea of the gesture of passing the peace. That's a wonderful gesture of communicating God's blessing to each other as we acknowledge his presence among us. It's a wonderful gesture. And there aren't many churches really that continue to practice that. It's sort of been left by the wayside as churches try to have shorter services and not pass as many germs around or something. I don't know. Symbolic structures. Yeah, this, this right here is a symbolic structure, isn't it? It says something. 
This, what I'm using right now, is a symbolic structure. If I invited one of you up to interact with me, and if I held on to this and I didn't hand it over, what am I actually saying? Symbolically, I'm in charge. You don't get to hold the mic, and when I want you to stop, <laughs> we'll push you away. You get the picture? Yeah, symbolism um, and symbolic objects. And we see a lot of those um, used especially through the Old Testament. And finally, worship is sacrificial. I made this statement this morning and um, it seemed to resonate, so I'm, I'll, I'll say it again. Worship should cost you something. Now, I'll just be clear and say eternal life is free, yes? But nonetheless, Jesus till, still tells us to pick up our cross and follow him, doesn't he? Yeah? His burden is light, but nonetheless, there is something to be picked up, isn't there? I think in, in our society today, we've tried to communicate this idea that Christianity is completely free of charge, costs you nothing, and there's nothing to it. Don't change your lifestyle. It shouldn't, you don't have to sacrifice a single thing. And yet, there is sacrifice involved in worship, is there not? From the dawn of history until the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70, human beings erected altars and offered sacrifice to the Lord in acts of worship. Since only descendants of Aaron were allowed to officiate at Jewish sacrifices and genealogical records were destroyed in the siege of Jerusalem, even Judaism abandoned the sacrificial system at that time. Christians, of course, understood the death of Christ as the supreme sacrifice rendering all others obsolete. So please hear me clearly. I'm not suggesting that Christ has to go on being sacrificed by virtue of what we do. It was one supreme sacrifice. But this idea of easy Christianity seems to have crept into Western society. And I think it comes from our complacency partly around what we do. It doesn't cost us anything to come to church. But yet in countries across the world, it could cost you your life. There is actually tremendous sacrifice in Christian worship in some spaces. And so we come to, oh, hang on, no, before we do, before I, I'm going to give you some ideas to work with. So the three um, definitions we're about to have a look at are from the, um, some of the strongest writers in Christian worship. Have a listen to the first one. This is by a guy, um, a writer by the name of D.A. Carson. Has anyone heard his work before? Um, it's very meaty. If you want to get really into some theology, then D.A. Carson's an interesting guy to read. This is how he defines worship. And you'll see I've put three dots in the middle right there. That's because I took out half a page. Yeah? Have a listen to this. Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honour and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. 
This side of the fall, human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. While all true worship is God-centered, Christian worship is no less Christ-centered. Worship, therefore, manifests itself both in adoration and in action, both in the individual believer and in corporate worship, which is offered up in the context of the body of believers who strive to align all the forms of their devout ascription to all worth to God with the panoply of new covenant mandates and examples that bring to fulfillment the glories of antecedent revelation and anticipate the consummation. Did you get that? Mark Evans, um, who um, heads up the Creative Arts Department of Macquarie University, of all things, wrote a great dissertation. His doctoral dissertation was on um, Hillsong music. And uh, he writes in his dissertation that not even a Bible college student is going to understand that. Uh, There's a lot in there, yeah? So I think we kind of got... Let's go looking for something that's a little bit more easier to understand. I think D.A. Carson is touching on the complexity of it. But he leaves all of us behind, you know. Let's have a listen to the next one. This guy is Robert Shaper. He writes in 84, Worship is the expression of a relationship in which God the Father reveals himself and his love in Christ and by his Holy Spirit administers grace to which we respond in faith, gratitude and obedience. That's a little bit more palatable, isn't it? starting to be a little bit more easily packaged for us. Not as easily packaged as the next guy. Who has had the joy of reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis? That's more hands than I got this morning. I was really surprised at um, how few people had read it. It's a fabulous text, one that I'm only just two-thirds of the way, well, a little bit further than that. And this is how C.S. Lewis, and one of the things I love about Mere Christianity and all of C.S. Lewis's work is he was one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. And he was able to take the most complex um, ideas of theology and of of other things in, in life and make them incredibly simple. Have a listen to how he describes Christian worship. Inner health made audible. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's heavily deconstructed, but it works a treat. So here's what we're going to do. For the next three minutes, in small groups, I want you to come up with a definition based in your own experience and a little bit of what we've talked about tonight. What is Christian worship? What is it that this this thing that we do when we get together? I want you to think about it. Yeah? And can we click? You've got three minutes. There's a timer and your time starts now. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Pens down. Hands on heads. Okay. I got more hands on heads tonight than I did this morning. I wonder why that is. Okay. Okay, how did we go? Who came up with something? Yes, Jaden. Powerful. Yeah, that's a good word. It it is. I always said my boys are genius. (laughs) Yes? 
togetherness in the body of Christ. Okay, okay, Leanne, give it to us in full. Great. Mm. And I think that draws out a really important point. It's God who first loved us. Our worship is always a response to the initiator, the one who first loved us. God always initiates worship. So fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So you're really touching on this idea of worship as all of life, not simply the one and a half hours that we come together in. Uh huh. Yeah. And worship, in that instance, we're, we're, we have to be very careful that we don't identify worship as being music or, um, you know, just the rites that we practice within a service. Worship is also um, the, the finding an old lady and walking her over, you know, across the street um, that no one ever gets to know about. What about the cheap seats? How do we go in, up the back? Yeah. Notice, I better, I better give, Phil was a bit upset this morning because he didn't get an opportunity to say anything and, and actually got up, got up at the end of my preaching and actually told everyone what they'd written down. So I better give Phil the opportunity to... <laughs> Same again. Okay. Oh, Daryl, sorry, mate. Yeah, and notice even in in that one, and if we go back across the other, the other definitions that we've had tonight, notice we've all stopped short of being prescriptive. We've all stopped short of saying worship has to have five songs in the service. Yeah, haven't we? We've all stopped short of saying worship um, should use, uh, of those five songs, two should be hymns. Yeah, um, these are preferences, sometimes built out of prejudice and bias, but nonetheless preferences. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about there's um, hymns, uh, psalms, and spiritual songs. There's two scripture references to that in the New Testament. 
but you can join the theologians in arguing over exactly what that means. Um, certainly um, we know that the Psalms is referenced, but whether hymns actually means the hymns that we are talking about that were written by D.L. Moody or Charles Wesley, that's up for debate. The point is, is that the, the, um, the Bible stops short of giving us this laid-out order of service. Yeah? Let's now, once again, turn our attention back to... Um, oh, before we do... Um, have a listen to this key quote that just summarises what I've just said about non-prescriptive. Non, um, uh, this is by a guy named Brian Chapel. fantastic book, Christ-Centred Worship, written very recently, 2009. The Bible mer mercifully denies us the worship detail we may desire. We as human beings, we do want order, don't we, to some extent? I pointed out this morning, um, did you realise that you... Actually brush your teeth exactly the same way every time you do it. Have a think about it. You dry yourself after a shower or bath exactly the same way every time you do it. Don't let the thought come in, how does he know that? <laughs> Don't go there. It's true, isn't it? You think about it, we are creatures of habit. We love things to be familiar, to be, um, uh, you know, the same. There's a reason McDonald's has been successful. You know, if I go into Singapore and I order a Big Mac, it's slightly smaller than an Australian Big Mac, but it is a Big Mac nonetheless. I like the familiarity of that, yeah? Keeping our focus, uh, worship focused on heavenly themes rather than earthly properties, proprieties, instead the lack of explicit detail must reflect an intention to guide us by transcendent principles rather than by specific worship forms that could become culture-bound, time-locked, and superstition-invoking. And those last three points are, are really key. God, um, God, by his wisdom and mercy, has stopped short of being prescriptive in the New Testament as to exactly how it should happen. So let's now, once again, turn our attention back to the key scripture, John um, 4. And let's quickly, just quickly go through this, unpacking it just a little bit, and then we'll, um, we'll come to a close. So Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now there are some um, writers, some uh, scholars, who suggest, and I think there's something in this, that this woman is actually flirting to a certain extent. You can't take this too fast. Jesus certainly doesn't respond with flirting. But you've got to remember, what has he identified for this woman? What is this woman searching for? She's had six men. She's searching for a single word, intimacy. Not just love, but intimacy, isn't she? She's in search for that. We know that she's an outcast amongst outcasts. We'll talk very briefly in a moment about Samaritans and where they stood in society at the time. But she's not simply a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan who has been ostracized by Samaritans. 
She is there in the heat of the day getting her water so that no one else will see her or have to interact with her. She is desperate to have some sort of connection and she's tried looking for it in men. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. For for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, "I I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The very fact that Jesus was even in Samaria says something really interesting about God knowing the time and the place that this communication had to take place. Just to point out, here's Eurasia, the big picture. There's Jacob's well right in in the middle there. So it's right in the middle of this aspect here. And this is around about where we've got the communication going on between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. I don't know if you can see it, but can you see this green line just here going along there? Jews used to circumnavigate. They would go the long way round to avoid even travelling through Samaria. They would go out of their way to even cross the Jordan here and travel all the way up to avoid actually going into this region so as not to defile themselves. Thus was the angst and the dejection of them as a people. That would be like Queenslanders having to go via South Australia, sort of out, down and back through South Australia to Victoria to avoid going anywhere near New South Wales. That would be like the aircraft going the long way round as well. You get the picture, yeah? That's how much they disliked each other. There was an incredible amount of tension. So the very fact that Jesus would even talk to the Samaritan woman was amazing. I've taken out a slide, which now I wish I hadn't have. Um, But it talks about Jesus um, and the amount of times that Jesus actually interacted with the Samaritan people and how much um, Jesus went out of his way to bridge that divide culturally. And I think, though tonight's not about that, there's something in that for us as a church, um, given that we are really engaged with the refugee um, matter at the moment, is that um, you know people that Australian society might be keen to ostracise at large, we should actually engage with more intentionally. I want to draw something just as we come to an end. Kind of nothing in worship has really changed from this interaction that we got between a Samaritan and a Jew in that moment. 
So the Samaritans are a blending of Jews with Gentiles and consequently they are disowned by both sides. I don't think we have to think far to think about our worship context and how we've seen over the years um, the challenges, for example, that have happened between Catholics and Protestants. Have we? And what have those issues been about? It's always been about the prescriptive nature of Scripture, hasn't it? And the manner in which that worship is gone about. And we definitely don't have time to unpack that. I grew up in Pentecostal churches. And I can tell you as a Pentecostal kid, we kind of looked down our noses at mainline church kids because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And they didn't talk in tongues. I'm, I'm glad to report I no longer think that. But we'd been taught to be, have this sense of prejudice spiritually around the way we worshipped. Samaritans had developed their own version of Jewish worship. And we here at St Mark's, we've developed our own, in the PM service, our own way of doing worship, haven't we? But is the way we do worship the right way? Well, it's a way, isn't it? It's, there's nothing wrong with the way we do worship, but it's not the right way which would suggest, you know, we've decided that there are plenty of wrong ways to do it and we're not doing it that way. The room got very quiet all of a sudden. Well, we can't quite go that far because that's kind of the, the Nike just do it idea. And you can't quite, we can't quite go that far. We do have to still be governed by the pillars of direction that Scripture gives us. For example, it would not be okay for us to all arrive here naked because we felt like it. Would, would it? So there are, some, there are certain boundaries that we have to stay within the framework of, even beyond what we might feel like doing or not doing. Our worship is no better here than it is down in the main auditorium, is it? The place of worship is actually not the important bit. Yeah, we worship in this space because it works for the way we're kind of doing it, yeah? But doing it down there, we could equally worship God doing the same framework, couldn't we? The space shouldn't actually impact on how we worship or the manner in which our worship takes place. Jesus declared a new era of worship, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. As a church, our challenge is to constantly work towards developing a balanced approach to our worship, one that emanates from within us and is founded in the revelation of Christ. 
as I finish, I'm going to actually play a track. Uh, it's an audio track of a, a, an 18th century hymn, modernised um, on a classical guitar. It's very pretty. Um, and uh, it goes for about three minutes. I want you to take a moment to just quietly, individually, but that being said, having a sense that we are doing it corporately, reflect on your approach to worship. And it might be an opportunity for you to reflect on perhaps your complacency towards what we do and, um, and where it sits in your life. Uh, Realising that familiarity breeds contempt. It might be an opportunity for you to reflect on how can I be far more engaged in this thing we call corporate worship and also my worship as a lifestyle. Maybe it's even just recognising that worship is a lifestyle, that your worship doesn't stop the moment you step onto the staircase to walk home. So take a moment and let's just allow the music to play. The lyrics are up there. For those of you who read music, do we have anyone here? Oh, Catherine's here. Who reads music? Yes. You are very, going to qu very quickly going to see that the music melodically does not match up with the melody that I've got. Okay? It got, I got pinged on it this morning. So the words are correct. The music is not. Okay? <laughs> just a heads up. Thanks, David. Could you play that for us? I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, O weary one, lay down your head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary, worn, and sad. I found in Him a resting place, and He has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give The living water, thirsty one Stoop down and drink and live I came to Jesus and I drank From that life-giving stream My thirst was quenched, my soul revived And now I live in Him
Jesus say I am this dark world's light Look unto me Thy morn shall rise And all thy days be bright I look to Jesus And I found in him my star, my sun And in that light of life I'll walk till trial 